There's an old joke among Marxist economists you may have heard that we Marxist economists are very proud. We predicted 10 of the last four economic downturns. <laughs> In other words, yeah, you know, and the joke bites because the joke is correct. I mean, and so I've been very skeptical. I don't talk like that, but you're right. Over the last, I would say it's only about a year or two, an accumulation of signs that I just, I don't know how else to describe it. How's it going, Richard? How you doing? All right. How about yourself? Uh, quite well, quite well, all things considered. The world, uh, you know, being as chaotic as it is these days. Yes, that's, and I just heard, where are you located right now? I'm in Vancouver, British Columbia. Okay, well, I'm in Manhattan, New York, and they just sent us a notice of some humongo storm that is about to hit us this evening with flooding and all kinds of grief. So, Oh, no. Are you safe? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, if my apartment house falls over, I will not be safe. <laughs> but for the moment, for the moment yes. Um, so, I've been told that you have a new book coming out. However... It may be one I've already read that I'm holding in my hands right now called Understanding Marxism uh, by Richard D. Wolff. Can you, can you give a little explainer as to what's happening? Sure. Um, that book is our bestseller. We have now four books that we've produced, three by me, one by uh, a wonderful investigative journalist named Bob Henley. By the way, if I could ever suggest someone to talk to, he's it. But anyway... Um, this was the first one. It is our bestseller. And an awful lot of people asked me to do another, almost to double its size, increase its size significantly and bring it up to date in terms of what the chaotic last three or four years, the book is only three years old, um, what new things Marxism might have to say about all that has uh, unfolded and all the rest. So it takes into account, you know, the pandemic, the crash of 2020, uh, things that I didn't have in my head the first time when I sat down. So think of it as a new edition with a big additional segment that wasn't in the first one. Plus, this is a hardcover uh, because people want to give it for gifts and stuff like that. Did you add parts from like The Sickness is the System, which is another one no, of your no, books? No, no, no. This, this was written just for this book. Okay. Um, I typically recommend this book, Understanding Marxism, for people who want to get into, say, uh, you know, theory and ideas. Uh, but obviously it's a lot more daunting to be like, well, yeah, just go out there and read all three volumes of Capital. It'll be, uh, it'll be a weekend project. But I usually recommend this one because, you know, it is relatively short and it's also really well written for uh, what I consider myself to be a layman, right? Where there's not as much uh, complicated theory. It's just here's the basic principles and concepts and, and here's how they apply to modern day society. Uh, did you? That's great to hear because that's exactly what it was written to do. So, <laughs> Fantastic. You know, I, I tell you, the, the story is really simple. I've been a professor all my life. It was only 10 years ago that I started doing this kind of work uh, because I had technically re retired from being a professor, um, even though I didn't want to retire in any other sense. Um, and then the crisis of 2008 hit, 
and really took off. And suddenly, from being a critic of capitalism who was barely tolerable because people got frightened, I became the person everybody wants to talk to him, you know, or so it seemed to me. And it has never let up uh, since. This is the right now, as I'm talking to you, this is the fourth interview I've done today. Wow. And, and you're not the last. Uh, so, <laughs> and that's been my life. And I won't deny it. I love this. I mean, I, I'm a teacher. They, instead of having 20 kids in the room, I have, you know, quarter of a million YouTube followers and all the rest. It's just it's a different, it's a whole different universe for, for someone like me. And anyway, we get all the mountains of emails and they were asking us more and more questions about Marxism. I think people were just discovering that here's a bunch of stuff that's critical of capitalism. I'm not too thrilled with it myself, so maybe I'll read this stuff. And then it was daunting because a lot of the work that's been done is very academic and abstract and all of that. And so instead of writing endless emails that were running six to ten paragraphs, I said, this is stu stupid. I should stop. I've written a bunch of books anyway as part of my academic career. I like doing that kind of writing. And so here's my task. Make it understandable. Make it clear. Make Reduce it to what the essential points are. That's what a good teacher should always do anyway. Um, and I wrote the book, and it did exactly what we hoped. That's People use it all over. It's been translated, and more translations are coming. Um, so it's done what it was supposed to do. And all this new one is, is that you get the same book that you already have, plus basically another one trying again in that same style, accessible, smoothly written, so it's logically clear why you're going from one section to another, um, and ending up, hopefully, with some Marxism in your head that you can use to make sense of the world alongside the other traditions that you that you borrow from. Well, I may not I might not be the last interview you do today, but hopefully this will be the most entertaining. That'll that'll be my goal. <laughs> um, what are some of the things you can tell me uh, in the new passages of the book that are pertinent to modern day society when talking about Marxism? Well, I think it it what it does is not so much that they're new, but what it does is it tries to show that the kinds of understandings of Marxism that were developed in the first book can be immediately put to use to understand what the hell is going on now in a way that hooks the different events together, that links things you didn't know perhaps how to link in your own mind. And I hope it's subtle, but nonetheless also points in the direction of what it is we ought to be doing if we want to do something about the condition of the world. Um, and, you know, a good bit of it has to do with the pandemic and the kinds of issues that have been raised around the pandemic. But the, the basic answer to your question is I wanted to demonstrate why it is I found Marxism useful. It's not the only theory in the world. It doesn't it's not that it doesn't have mistakes. It does. Uh, it's not that there aren't things I disagree with. There are. But this is a very useful thing to have in your toolbox of how to understand what's happening to you in the world. So it's like a, it's like giving a carpenter this wonderful new thing, a hammer. Gee, you know, stuff goes, can you get the nail into the wood without a hammer? Sure. But this hammer really kind of helps position it, get it in there quickly, make it hold on to the pieces of wood it connects, et cetera, et cetera. 
Um, that's what Marxism is supposed to do. People have often said to me, and as a professor, this is very, when I would teach, and I taught at both the graduate and undergraduate levels, but you teach graduate Marxist theory, it's, it's complicated. It's nothing that anybody with a brain can't manage, they can, but you have to spend some time and kind of work your way through it. Um, but I didn't want to do that again. I wanted to show to the people who asked me the question, what use is this? I wanted to give them an answer. Here's the use. Look at what sense we can make of things that are happening, and then you'll see why it's a useful theory. So there seems to be a little bit of a debate going online right now in relation to Marxism, specifically about more modern forms of work and labor uh, that may not have existed or even be conceived during the time that Marx was doing his writing. Um, one of the examples I wanted to start with is Netflix. Um, there's uh, a conversation going online, and I wanted your input on this, as to whether or not Netflix employees can be considered workers, because Marx differentiated between unproductive and productive labor, and also differentiated between what is considered to be uh, rental uh, um, profits as well. Um, so the idea being perhaps that the employees at Netflix, regardless of their position, are contributing to produced uh, gross domestic product that is in essence being rented to people who are viewing it. Um, what would your initial analysis of that be? Well, for me, I would have to take it in steps. The first thing is I would argue with anyone who does this. And, and by the way, I'm not saying I'm about to argue in the sense that John is right and Mary's wrong. My argument is people read Marx differently. They always have and they do now. And there are disagreements and debates. And by the way, the same is true of Keynesian economics. The same is true of neoclassical or mainstream economics. There are different understandings. So I'm about to give you mine. Okay. One of the crucial issues is what did Marx mean by the distinction between productive and unproductive labor? For me, the answer is very simple and clear. A productive laborer is someone who produces a surplus for an employer who takes it. Uh, it has nothing to do with the physical, whether you make a good or you perform a service uh, or you are educated or uneducated or any anything else like that. It's a simple question of your position in a relationship. Are you in a position where the labor you do produces a surplus which someone gets? If the answer is yes, uh, then, and we're talking capitalism, you're the worker and there's an employer or boss who gets a surplus you produce, then you are a productive laborer. If instead you are a laborer, you are hired by the same company, let's say, that hired the productive worker. I'll pick an example. Well, I'll take your example. You're hired to produce Netflix movies or whatever it is. Uh, and you produce these movies, which your employer, Netflix Corporation, sells access to in whatever form it wants to do that. You're a productive worker if your labor generates a surplus. If you help to produce what that employer sells, and if the value that the employer gets for selling it 
is larger than the value added by your labor, then he gets a surplus. Part of the value your labor produces or adds, and remember that it's always called value added because there's stuff you use up when you make a film. You know, you, you use a computer or you use a desk and chairs. You, you have props, you have inputs. The value of those is transferred to the final product that they are used up in the production of. Your living labor, if you're a filmmaker, is adding to the value of the used up inputs to get the total value of the output. It's really just a measure of how much labor in general went into the production of the output. The if product the itself doesn't matter. The product itself does not matter whether it's a good or a service. It makes apt, whether it's a luxury item, a, a necessity of life, uh, you name it, that does not matter. Marx is pretty clear about that. Gives examples of a violin player. He gives examples of a comedian, a clown in the circus, and so on. Uh, no, it doesn't matter. It's the relationship. Marx is all about relationships. What is your relationship to that employer? And now let me give you the example of the un unproductive labor. The same employer, Netflix, hires John. And John's job is to keep track of the productive workers. Do they come in on time? Are they drunk when they come in on time? Do they spend too much time in the toilet? Uh, are they doing the job that they were asked to do? Are they careful to turn the light off before they go home? A hundred things, but it's got nothing to do directly with the producing of the product that the employer sells. And the way I use it when I teach it is the unproductive laborer should be seen as the enabler. The unproductive worker does produces the context within which the productive laborer does the surplus that is the whole point and purpose of capitalism. So that's why the words productive and unproductive do not signal, as people who haven't read this carefully, I would argue, didn't get it, you know, it's not about your importance. The, the two are just as important to the whole reproduction of capitalism. Each is as important as the other, but their relationship to the process of producing value and surplus value, that's different. And so, you know, e even in cultures that don't know anything about Marxism, they make a, a, a gesture, they, they kind of understand that there's a difference here. For example, in, in common speech in the United States, you have blue collar, white collar. Well, it's not, it's not carefully worked out. It's not a theory the way Marx laid it out. But it is a groping, if you like, after the same distinction. There are people who produce the object, and then there are people who take care of all of the other things that have to be done if that productive worker is going to be productive. You take away the unproductive and the productive can't do his job. So there's no ranking of importance. Um, and one of the reasons that happened here in the United States, by the way, in ways it didn't in other countries, was that early feminists who were Marxists, and there were a lot of them in that category, um, thought that they could apply Marxism by making the point that male workers who go into the larger economy and get a salary or a wage are productive. And that 
women who stay at home and, and take care of the elderly and the children and all the rest of it, the house, are unproductive because that was their way of saying, look at the way uh, capitalist society subordinates women or makes them secondary, a citizen. That's an interesting argument, but it's got nothing to do with Marxism. And it was a borrowing of wording that had the unfortunate side effect of making Marx's point disappear and be replaced by an argument about who's more or less uh, essential for capitalism. Marx said over and over again, that the importance of the distinction was in the different relationship. And that difference, of course, has consequences. Uh, let me give you one that's really important. If you're a labor organizer and you've been taught this theory, you then begin to say, well, wait a minute now. I can't treat all wage earners as, the, as if they were indifferent one to the other. In other words, if they're all the same, because yes, they all get paid wages, that's something they have in common, but they may have very different relationships, both to the employer and to one another, that I better take into account when I organize my union or else the union effort is going to fail or the union's going to blow up or internal tensions are not going to be understood. It's this, you know, and the parallel here is once upon a time, people thought of all workers as being the same thing. And the folks had to come along and say, no, turns out your racial difference matters. Turns out your gender difference matters. Turns out, and then fill in the blank, in a way, Marxism does that in, in terms of something you have to learn to understand before you recognize it when it's staring you in the face. So if you're adding intersectional politics to it and you're making that distinction between productive and unproductive labor, being that unproductive labor can still be a part of the same um, company that's producing a product, they just might not be exactly. the direct like widget makers that could be the, the administrative assistant or something like that, right? Exactly. How, yeah. how, how does Marx introduce the intersectional approach or is that something that's come post-Marx from other uh, philosophers and people who are trying to look at this? No, no, Marx was it was... I mean, he didn't call it that. He didn't have that word or that language. Mm -hmm. But Marx was very, very interested in that. And subsequent Marxists have been, if anything, more interested. But it's not present absent. It's, you might say, some and more. Uh, Marx, for example, was very critical of the economists of his time. Uh, he deeply admired Adam Smith and David Ricardo, wrote huge uh uh, commentaries on both of them, and many others, by the way, uh, full of compliments. Uh, he had some criticisms, but he took Adam Smith and, and Ricardo very, very seriously, in a way, by the way, that the followers of Smith and Ricardo have not re returned the kindness to Marx, to say the least. But in any case, Marx did. But he was critical of them on just your point. He felt that they didn't explore as much as they could have and should have the intersection or the interdependence or the interrelation, depending on how you put it, between the economic realities they focused on and the political, historical, psychological, ideological context. 
And for example, they didn't therefore understand the absolute importance of the unproductive laborer uh, to the effect that the productive laborer can have. I mean, to be blunt, if you don't have the right combination of unproductive laborers in your capitalist enterprise, the amount of surplus and hence the rate of profit that you will get will be affected. If you make that mistake, if you don't understand Marx's argument, uh, either through Marx or maybe some other theorist that you've come across, if you don't understand that, you are going to make terrible mistakes because you will not attend to the unproductive worker the way you would have had you understood the direct interconnection between the ideological or administrative uh, work that he or she does um, and the production of surplus that is the focus of the, of the employer uh, in that situation. Then subsequent Marxists uh, became more and more interested in that. The most famous, I, mean, I shouldn't put it that way, but at least in my, in my uh, organization of the material, the most famous of these is Antonio Gramsci, the Italian Marxist. And, and he was driven by a very concrete political reality. Uh, people in America who encounter Gramsci, you know, get very excited because he comments mostly about cultural things, the, the importance of the Roman Catholic church in Italy, the importance of the split in Italy between the north that's industrial and advanced and the south and Sicily that are uh, agricultural, uh, have the mafia uh, and all of that that goes with it. Wonderful work that he did about all that. But he was motivated in his political position as head of the Italian Communist Party, which he was. And in that capacity or on his way to becoming that, he was involved in the general strike in the north of Italy uh, around the city of Torino. And this very successful general strike, but in the end, the strike was successful, but the ultimate failure to bring about the kinds of changes that he had hoped for led him to ask the question, why did we fail? We were so well positioned. We had gotten the workers all organized. They went out when they were supposed to. Uh, the conditions were horrible. Everything was in order. Well, then what went wrong? And he was uh, tortured by this. And his answer was the objective situation, uh, the condition of the workers, the behavior of the employer, uh, the wages they got and didn't get, uh, the level of organization among them. These were all ready to make the revolution. But what was not was their ideological commitments to a set of cultural values that we had not understood. And they were such that he reached this famous conclusion. The revolution was objectively doable, but subjectively impossible. And what he meant by that, and what he devoted the rest of his life, or his, his creative writing life anyway, to, was to explain how Italian culture so shaped these workers that they could not break through subjectively in terms of their own thinking to take advantage of a revolution that was theirs to make. They had the people, they had the organization, they had the crumbling of the 
capitalist class unable to get to stop them, but they held themselves up. It, it's a kind of parallel to Marx's comments. When Marx, you know about the, the, the Paris Commune of 1871? Yeah. Okay. Well, Marx was alive at that time, and he was in close contact uh, from London uh, with the revolutionaries in Paris. And when that one happened, he was very, very excited because it was the first time that workers uh, led by people like Marx himself took power. And in this case, in a major European city, uh, a city that is kind of the, the metaphor for the country as a whole anyway. Um, and he was ecstatic and he was really affected when it was crushed, you know, a few months after it was born. And he had a real hard time writing out Marx, I'm talking about, yeah. trying yeah. to explain what were the non-economic factors uh, that hobbled the ability of the Paris Commune to survive against the, the French bourgeoisie's reaction. In a way, Antonio Gramsci does for the failed general strike in Torino what Marx did for the for the collapse of the of the the Paris Commune and what Marxists like me just to finish it off that's what we think is our job we have to answer the question why did the Soviet Union collapse why is China going in the directions it is what are the lessons we have to learn what did they do right what did they do wrong what has to be done differently and when you do that, what you call intersectionality or the, the, the interdependence or interpenetration of economic and non-economic, political, cultural, ideological, uh, natural, to include ecology, uh, those become very crucial to understanding what's happening historically. And I try to show that in a variety of ways in this book as well. Um, I did like that part in the book where you mentioned that, you know, after that revolution where they were promised liberté, qualité, fraternité, Marx realized that all three of those things weren't being delivered under capitalism and that there was something right. fundamentally missing. Do you think it's too broad to use the statement that if you are um, not an employer, you're an employee, you are by definition a worker? Is that too too broad of a statement to make? No, I mean... You know, in and of itself, no. It's a question of whether you contextualize such a remark, such a statement, such a sentence, in such a way that it doesn't uh, convey something which is incorrect. For example, that it, that we're all the same. That that the fact that I share the identity with with John or Mary over there, that we are all employees or workers or something like that. That's fine. We are. We share that. It's a very different thing, though, if, for example, a 20th century communist party anywhere in the world has an argument that goes roughly like this. Since the vast majority of people are workers, then we all have in common this commitment to this politics in this way. That is not only a mistake in Marxian theory but it's a political catastrophe waiting to happen because what you've done is instead of in Marx's, and remember he's a student of Hegel, Marx understands that everything is contradictory. 
I am like you because we are both workers. I am unlike you because you're productive and I'm unproductive. Or I'm unlike you because you're a female and I'm a male or you're black or I'm white or whatever it is that these things have to be given their recognition, their understanding that if you make a unity of everybody, it's got to be a unity. And here comes Hegel built on the disunity of your differences that can be done, but it has to be understood as a task which is not accomplished by calling everybody by the same name. So if you've explained it to people, yeah, as a shorthand, no problem. But if you're dealing with people to whom it is not clear or it has never been explained or it is not part of a, of a common a literary tradition that everybody reads, then you're opening yourself up for it to be misunderstood in ways that will come back and haunt you uh, for the rest of your political life. Yeah. One of the things I want to ask in regards to that, though, how does one apply in the modern age? Because I've heard the argument put forth by, um, let's just say, uh, you just mentioned 20th century like communist organizations, uh, how about 21st century communist organizations, that in, we have to first achieve uh, like a freedom uh, between the classes before we can start to apply other intersectional approaches to it, right? Such as um, once we can liberate everyone through an advancement into socialism or into communism, then we can also uh, remove the other, uh, you know, antagonisms that exist within society. However, like what we're speaking about right now, there's obviously um, a very difficult way to reconcile that with the fact that if you are, say, black in America, even if you're rich and uh, a very famous, uh, you know, musician or a very talented doctor, but you're still black, there is still that element that you're still a black American, right? Outside of the fact that you have surpassed uh, the class analysis. Well, for me, again, uh, the kind of marks that I, that I vibrate to, that I understand, what I took from my studies and teaching Marx all my adult life is that, um, I mean, it's almost hard for me to be polite. I don't know what the order of events will be in a revolutionary rupture uh, with capitalism. I don't know whether the lead will be um, a racial confrontation and explosion or a gendered one or a regional one or an education level one uh, or a classic employer employee confrontation. I really, I, I'm not in the business of making predictions and I find the assertion, it has to be in this order, kind of preposterous. I, I, for me, I believe in, the, in, in, in what we call uh, in this approach, overdetermination, that what, what the moment is that produces the break is overdetermined by all of the things that are going on in the society, not just the economic ones. We really are over and against economic determinism. Uh, I need you to show me, if you want to make an argument that uh, some struggle in the realm of racial relations, for example, some struggle here in the United States that pits, uh, say, white supremacists against people who are opposed to that, for lack of a better language. Um, I am very interested in what the connections are or could be between a struggle on that subject and all the other things that I'm interested in. 
I, I absolutely I would want to go to a speech on that subject. I will hope that people involved in this struggle are interested in the connections between that struggle and others that are going on. I'll be more drawn to people fighting over uh, white supremacy who take into account the economics that is going on in and around that struggle than people who are oblivious and don't care about it. But that's all. For me, uh, I, I don't know what is going to be uh, the key revolutionary thing. I mean, I, again, a concrete example. When Occupy Wall Street happens in the latter months of 2011, uh, the big thing that blew my mind and drew me immediately to them was that they put forward the slogan 1% versus 99%. What they meant by that very clearly was that 1% of the people have the wealth and the other 99% don't. And the 1% wield a lot of power that the other 99% don't. Okay, that's not a class analysis. That's a different kind. It's an analysis based on income and power very important things in the world, but not what I understand class to be about. But I didn't hesitate for one minute to applaud Occupy Wall Street. I went and spoke at both at Zuccotti Park and half a dozen other uh, Occupy Wall Street locations. I was proud and happy to be asked to do it. I did it with pleasure and enthusiasm uh, because it struck me that this group of people, whom I did not know personally, and in most cases, had struck a chord. They had found a way to um, activate people, to excite them, to uh, move them uh, into a political space they hadn't been uh, interested in or active in before. These were all more than enough reasons to give them my enthusiastic participation. And yes, when they asked me, I did bring up other dimensions in the hope that the struggle to overcome income inequality and power inequality, which I support, could be seen in an alliance, if you like, or in a coalition with people who understand class differences and the need to bring them to into a transformative or transitional situation in the hope, and this I do believe, that the kinds of changes we want in racial or gender or family structure or sexual orientation or whatever it is that we all more or less support and seek, that those things are better served in a different class structure than they are in the one we're in and that they can be supports of a better class system and vice versa if we are clear in our minds to go that way. Um, I also want to ask you, you said multiple times on um, your show as well as your podcast that you feel that we're in the midst of capitalism and decline. It's a decaying system and there's many signs showing towards that. And I, I, I agree with you up to a point because sometimes I feel it's a little bit like peak oil 
Do you remember we were told that like peak oil was going, to, was going to run out? And then all of a sudden it's like, hey, we've invented new technology. We can shatter shale and we can extract even more oil than ever before. We can do even more horrifying things to the environment to keep getting more oil. Here's some more Band-Aids. Here's some more Band-Aids. Do, do not worry that that's kind of the direction we go down instead of people wanting a complete dramatic structural change, like being like, well, let's go back to some Keynesian economics. Let's get uh, a new deal. Let's get some more social safety nets in place. Right. No, I think it's a brilliant, it's a very, very good question. I mean, I, it, it, it's very good that you pose it. Uh, and, and I basically agree with you with a slight maybe difference of emphasis. Um, I have always hesitated, you know, I, and I've been around a while. My hair is white. Um, I have always hesitated in the face of left wingers, even those I admired and liked, when they started telling me, you know, the system is in crisis, the system is going to collapse. I mean, there's an old joke among Marxist economists you may have heard that we Marxist economists are very proud. We predicted 10 of the last four economic downturns. <laughs> in other words, yeah, you know, and the joke bites because the joke is correct. I mean, and so I've been very skeptical. I don't talk like that. But you're right. Over the last, I would say it's only about a year or two, an accumulation of signs that I just, I don't know how else to describe it. And here's what I mean. In the past, I've always been able to say, I see a way out. If the system finds this way out that I can see, then it'll get through this crisis as it has gotten through others. Um, but this time I see both an accumulation of unsolved problems now cascading in on one another, and I don't see a way out. Uh, and this will take a minute, but I think you'll find it interesting. We've had three major wars in the last 25 years, Vietnam, Iraq, and Afghanistan. And in the interest of time, I won't make it an argument. I'll just tell you we lost all three of them. That is extremely important. Number two, for the first time in a century, the United States has a serious economic competitor. We never really had that. We never had it with the Soviet Union, which couldn't in a million years be an economic competitor of the United States and never came close. But China is. China is a competitor economically. China is a competitor politically. China is not yet a competitor militarily, but that scares me half to death, so I won't go in that direction. <laughs> we have a level of, of inequality that is off the chart. I mean, in, in the 1945, at the end of World War II, the United States was less unequal than most of the countries in Europe. That situation is now completely reversed. We are the most unequal, and not only that, even when Warren Buffett or uh, uh, Bezos or others chime in to support the Gallup and other polls that indicate the vast majority of Americans, including Republicans, think that the inequality is excessive and wish it would be less, that the system does nothing, fundamentally nothing, to change it. The inequality has gotten worse steadily for 40 years with Trump, with Biden, with Obama, it made no difference. Not even the rate can be shown to have much of a pattern of difference among them. 
what kind it, it, it's a little bit like lemmings you know being run off the end of the pier into the water this this driven quality which is on display now as they literally rip all the guts out of Mr. Biden's modest uh, program for, uh, you know, rebuilding the family and all the rest of that stuff, Mm -hmm. you know, barely catching up to European countries with what they've been doing for decades. This is being torn apart because the Republicans are unified against it. Two Democratic senators can hold up the rest of the system. And and nothing is done to bring the mass of people who overwhelmingly want these social services into the equation. No demonstrations in the streets. No uh, AFL-CIO calling a march on Washington. On and on. It's an extraordinary display of a system that is driving itself into more and more divisiveness, bitterness, hostility, violence. I mean, what in the world is going and, and what's to get out of it? Tell me, how are we going to get out of this situation when you can't even get what Biden does? Let me put it to you this way. We have never had in the United States at the same time a major economic crash and a major public health disaster. We've had one or the other. We had the Spanish flu in 1918. We had the crashes of 1930 and 2008. Uh, But we've never had the two at the same time. We are now going through the second year of a combination of crises that, that are once in the history of a society. You need a correspondingly enormous response. And we're not getting it. We're not getting anything close to it. And and that's that's so self-destructive, it kind of blows my mind. Could we have a new deal? Of course we could. Could it be big and broad enough to really do? Yes. But I don't see how that's achievable. Once I saw how modest Mr. Biden's proposals were, and that Bernie Sanders would be satisfied with that. And then I, I speculated, which you know the, the media did for me, that the Republicans could effectively block at least a good part of even that. Then I said to myself, okay, this is a society where you need psychological concepts like death wish to understand what's going on. This, this is nuts. You know, three weeks ago, whenever it was, I watched Americans by the millions getting terribly excited when two billionaires, two of our richest billionaires, competed with one another in spending hundreds of millions of dollars to get eight minutes in space in a rocket ship. All right. uh, I'm flabbergasted. I'm overwhelmed by this. this. This is, you know fiddlers in Rome while the city burns. What are you doing? You're admiring the use of money that could otherwise have vaccinated everybody or provided schooling for the children who lost a year of their education. I mean, the lack of an imagination is part of a system that's dying. 
He even said we, the quiet part out loud too when he was like, "I'd like to thank all the workers for making this possible." As in, yeah, you're you're the ones whose whose yeah, wealth I, I I've accrued and now I can go into space. Thanks. Yeah, it, it for me. See, I mean, I'm shocked. Like mo- I mean, many Americans were shocked by all of that. I get that, but it, this what I'm trying to say is a bit more than it's more than the kind of ballsiness, if you pardon me, that that he shows with these kinds of remarks. It's the fact that. You know, it's an event like a lot of other things, like the Super Bowl or the World Series or um, uh, that poor actor who shot the woman uh, on the set there in in, uh, L.A. You know, it's one of those events. Everybody shakes their head and kind of shocking and makes you think a little bit about the fragility of life. But then you go on. You know, it's not a life change. But this this display of a man... uh, both Elon Musk and uh, Bezos, I believe, are now over the $200 billion mark. So if you have $200 billion and you're earning 5%, and you should do better, but you give it to a hedge fund and they make 5% for you, that's making $10 billion more each year just by the passage of time. Uh, this is crazy that we are doing this at a time when we are about to dump, I don't know, 30 million Americans losing their homes through eviction uh, and all the bitterness and hostility as this system kicks down so that those at the top pass the pain of an economic decline onto those beneath them who in turn pass it on to those beneath them the way our system works. I see the level of bitterness and hatred I think it's extremely dangerous. For me, I don't believe I have ever seen, you know, I was born in Ohio. I've lived and worked in the United States all my life. I've never seen anything like this. And I don't see a way out. I just don't. And, And even that I might have overcome. But then the specter looking over our shoulder at another system that has figured out how to do a whole lot of these things better than the United States does. And Americans are blind. They, you know, they will not look at what China is. And China is full of things I don't like. This has nothing to do with celebrating China. But you are blind if you don't see. You know, two-thirds of the fast trains in the world are located in China. None of them are located in this country. What in the world does that mean? Fast trains are moving people and produce around China to pre-planned cities. They have the most large cities of any country in the world by far. They've organized these cities. They planned them in advance. You know, they have suffered 8,000 dead people from COVID. We have suffered 700,000. These are not small differences. These are catastrophic failures. And the system keeps chugging along, the people at the top congratulating each other for a recovery. What are you talking about? Recovery from what? It it was even worse last year, but everybody who ever looked at a statistical series knows that it bounces around. You haven't recovered. You have a, a crash in 2020, and you barely gotten out of the crash of 28. 
If you rank the three worst crashes in American capitalism, they're the 1930s, 2008, and 2020. So two of the three worst in the history have happened in the last decade, roughly. I mean, that ought to worry you, Jack, you know. And then, you, you know, because well, I'm interested in okay. Europe, one last point, because I'm interested in Europe, I see the same kind of signs there. The UK is lining up on the side of the United States. No surprise there. Russia is lining up on the side of China. That's a bit more of a surprise. But the rest of Europe, I mean, I, I read French and German. I've known those languages since I was born, uh, and I'm fluent in both of them. So I read a lot of literature. The French and the Germans are engaged in a genuine debate which way to go. And I mean U.S. versus China. Americans are pretending this isn't going on. This is a, it blows my mind. But if you put it together with all the others, then the short answer is yes. I think the American economy um, is in deep trouble. And I think the American empire, which was a reality for most of the last century, is now definitely in decline. But your question remains very smart. Because if you were to push me and say, is it impossible to get out of it? The answer is no, it is not. The fact that I can't see a way out doesn't mean there isn't one. Uh, this system has been very resilient, and I am therefore I have to, because of that, uh, hedge my argument and say, well, maybe some technological breakthrough that I didn't understand or foresee, or maybe some geopolitical reshuffle that I can't imagine. But it seems to me that the inequality, the lost wars, the internal divisiveness, uh, the failure to prepare and cope with COVID compared to many other countries, not just China, these are, these are signs of a system that is not functioning. You, when you were talking about how people seem to be growing, like there's more animosity towards each other than there ever was before. You've never seen it like this. Do you also add perhaps the social media aspect to that and the current like culture? Because there's like there's a profit incentive behind companies like Facebook, Twitter, um, to promote material that is inflammatory or incendiary because it, it results in people staying and engaged on social media platforms for a longer time. AKA, at the end, it's it's more profit to their shareholders to do these kind of things, but it creates much more um, animosity within society. Um, is is that an aspect that you approach uh, in your new book as well? Yes, although I would use your argument uh, uh, there. In other words, they haven't understood the intersectionality. They haven't understood that the logic that drives capitalism, that is to maximize your profit, to forever cut your costs, and that the winner of the game of capitalism is the one who profits the most who plows the most of the profits back in to profit still further. What this does is make you relatively blind to all of the other dimensions, not only of life in general, but of the life of the people upon whom in the end you depend. You know, Mr. Zuckerberg has carefully accomplished an amazing thing given the resources at his disposal. He is hated by nearly everybody. I mean, his name, I, I'm amazed, even in, 
in otherwise staid academic circles, you bring up Zuckerberg and, and people, you know, let fly with whatever's bothering them or whatever <laughs> they hate in the previous hour that didn't agree with them. Uh, they hate the guy. They, they in, impute to him all these awful qualities, which he may have. I, I don't know. But for me, what I'm seeing is you've got to be very careful that you aren't the scapegoat for all these other social, economic, political, ideological problems, because if you are at all sensitive, you look around, you see who else has been scapegoated. There's people who've been scapegoated and groups that have a lot less of a potential to be the scapegoat than you do, Jack. So you better pay attention how it happened to them before you're in the crosshairs and everybody's unloading their grief on you. Now, Republicans and Democrats can get together to beat up on Zuckerberg. I've seen it several times. Or to beat up on Apple or on Microsoft or Google or whoever else uh, they want to go after. I see it in other countries as well. But I could have given a lecture, and by the way, I have, <laughs> at the invitation of, of some of these business groups, who, by the way, this may surprise you, there are business groups who bring in people like me and they explained, and I asked them, you know, are you interested in Marxism? Oh, no, of course not. But we, we know what the other people, the mainstream thinks. We want to hear what you think because we want to get it from all the different perspectives so that we don't make a mistake. I mean, it's a more open-ended mentality that I find in most academic departments. And I'm talking about CEOs of pretty big uh, uh, corporations. Look, we, we just came through, I don't know, uh, five, ten years in which the following craziness became kind of relevant. In a country of 330 million, uh, something is... No, no worries at all. Is that you on your end? That, it's, it's not, no. I think it's coming from your house. Yeah, I don't know what that is. Okay. Um, <laughs> Can I continue, though? Yes, okay? please. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Um, we're a country of 330 million people, and we have an undocumented immigrant issue, maybe 10, maybe 12 million. Okay. That's enough information for me to be able, as a professional economist, to say to you, nothing fundamental in the economic system of the United States has been affected in a significant way, one way or the other, by the presence of 10 to 12 million undocumented immigrants. That's too small a number to fundamentally alter a, a population of 330 million. It's ridiculous to think that there are invasions of them that are taking your job is a fantasy. Now, it plays in our culture because a large portion, white male workers in particular, feel that they are being quote unquote replaced, that their place in society is being taken from them. And by the way, in that they are correct. Their grievance is, in my judgment, is valid and correct. But they have been sold a bill of goods that by beating the crap out of the desperately poor immigrants from Central America, they're going to do something about what ails them. That makes exactly the same sense 
as the conservatives in Britain convincing the British working class that by voting for Brexit, <laughs> blaming Europe for England's decline, which is a century of an empire that's not there anymore, uh, that's crazy and has made the situation worse, as indeed all of Trump's noise about immigrants didn't do one bit of good for the people that supported it. And Mr. Biden's enhancement of the exodus of the immigrants is doing nothing to solve his problems either. But if you see that, it would seem to me, and if I were called in by the high tech companies, I'd be giving them this lecture. You guys better learn that if the improbable scapegoating and demonizing of immigrants worked to get someone into the presidency, which it did, you better worry about what next demagogue is going to finger you. And you better think about it and you better come up with plans or else you are not covering a flank and it will come and bite you in the rear end and it will not be fun. Um, I don't know how much time you have because I have a couple more questions that I really want to ask. Go ahead. Go ahead. Okay. And I, I was also going to ask you, are you okay with a couple audience questions as well? If I'm okay with oh a couple audio uh, sorry audience questions from the uh, from the people sure, watching sure sure okay sure. Um, one of the first ones is related to the modern working force which seems to be getting a lot more taken over by app economies so people are working for Uber for Lyft or they're streamers for Amazon or streamers for Google and Alphabet and stuff like that right. um, do you see uh, a method in which people can start to take back democracy in the workplace, either through collective action, which they've tried to varying degrees of unsuccess, or by people becoming self-aware that jobs are transfer transferring from what used to be contract work uh, with benefits to this, uh, sorry, what used to be non-contract work with benefits to this heavily uh, contracted app economy where people are just beholden to these companies? Yeah, I think, I mean, my strategy, if, if, if that's what you're asking, would be to be to do both of these things at the same time. Uh, be, again, because no one knows which of these two wings of the effort will be the more successful, will motivate or reach people uh, better. And, and that's I don't think that's a theoretical question. That's a question of, of empirically excuse me, trying these uh, tactics. So let me start with the second one. Um, California was a very interesting effort there where the Uber and Lyft and the others were able to win uh, that referendum type of vote they had last year uh, to allow them to get away with this game of replacing uh, 100 years of labor legislation and labor struggle to get benefits that are given to employees to erase all of that. I mean, I'm exaggerating, but not by much to erase all of that by simply reclassifying the worker as a grid work, as a gig worker or a contract worker and all that other uh, crap. And there has been a very good reaction or backlash to that vote. Um, and I'm not sure that uh, the governor of California uh, will allow that to stand. But in any case, I would argue that one of the things to do is to teach people to argue, to explain that this is a, a, a new chapter, but an old novel of capitalism. It is forever looking how to either articulate a new demand 
or to undo a past uh, one. Uh, and, and it is always done in, in pretty much the following way. And when you explain this to people, at least in my experience, the, you, you often reach the, the lovely aha moment when they get it. And, and they're pleased to now understand uh, what's going on here. In every service that is done for people in the history of capitalism, when it is taken over by capitalists, that is, it becomes an object of profit-making enterprise. And I'm going to use here the taxi only because Uber is the example in people's minds. The minute moving people around in a horse-drawn carriage or then in an automobile became a profit-making enterprise where individual uh, companies competed to get you to use their taxi rather than the other guy's taxi, it was inevitable that the following happened, because it always happens. There were, quote unquote, the unscrupulous, which turned out to be almost all of them. And here's what they would do. To win this contest, to get the profit, to get the most profit, maybe by offering lower uh, costs for the taxi ride uh, that you took from them, they would save on a cost. For example, they wouldn't fix the car as often as they ought to. They wouldn't maintain a mechanic uh, as often as they ought to. They wouldn't buy the insurance that they ought to have as they ought to. And I could go on and on and on. And guess what? When they did this, they forced the others in the interest of winning the competition, or at least not losing it, to copy, to do the same things, or indeed to find new ways uh, to save uh, by giving the job at a lower rate to a taxi driver who was just out of prison and couldn't get a job anywhere else with the results that you can imagine. So guess what? Over time, taxi rides became dangerous. It, the taxi would fall apart or the taxi would have an accident and it turned out there were no insurance or the driver wouldn't behave properly and you took a risk with your bodily safety if you got into the damn cab and on and on and on. Solution, here we go, a commission. The mayor, the governor, whoever sets up a commission like the taxi and limousine commission here in New York or the utility commission that governs every utility, or the insurance commission in every state that governs that industry, and I could go on. And here's what the commission does. We have to have safe taxis, and we have to make it profitable. That, those are our two commands, because private capitalism couldn't get the job done. It made profit, but it risked too much. So here's what we'll do. The commission will set the rate and it will impose on the companies the requirement to do X, Y, and Z, and then set the rate so that they can both do those things and make a quote-unquote reasonable profit, which the commission would set. And the commission would say, if you have a taxi, you have to have it inspected every two months. You have to have a, a on-file valid insurance policy. You have to vet the driver, and that has to be on record at the commission, and on and on and on. Okay? It makes the cost of a cab ride significantly more expensive than it was under the cost-cutting capitalists. So now, the price of the cab ride goes up 
because you have to fund all the mandated safety requirements plus the reasonable profit. Okay, the minute you do that, you create the incentive for a new crop of taxi capitalists to say, wow, at those higher prices, if we could somehow undo the regulation, go back to what the old cab driver companies were doing, but sell the cab ride at the price the commission set, would we make a profit? Oh boy. And that's all Uber and Lyft and any of it. That's all they are. They are the same old story. They came in and they set up cab drivers, taxi riders, and these capsule riders didn't have to have the insurance, didn't have to have the maintenance, didn't have to perform various, didn't have to vet the driver, none of that shit, at least at the beginning. Yet they could compete by charging just a smidgen less than the inflated price of the cabs, which had to do all the mandated work. But all, of course, that had to be hidden. And the way it's hidden is to claim that what you're doing is something completely different, not about the, the old story of how capitalism works, repeated a thousand times. Oh, no. Uber wanted to tell us that it's all about, get ready, the sharing economy, or it's all about the new technology that the Internet allowed. That is complete 100 percent shit of the bull. You know, that is nonsense. That is that is that is the equivalent of a soap company telling you that if you only use their brand of soap, your sex life will improve 100 percent. You giggle when they hear that on the on the TV because you know what's going on. The equivalent giggle is in order when someone like Glyph, uh, Lyft or Uber tells you all about its wonderful technology, which, by the way, every cab company that I know of has copied long ago, uh, as if that was what was going on. They are not profitable because of anything other than taking advantage of the incapacity of private capitalism to run a taxi service, the follow-up of the commission, and then they're now ripping off the commission arrangement. And by the way, you know what's happening? Again, predictable. More and more communities and countries are requiring Uber and Lyft to, to submit the same to the same demands that were originally a hundred years ago, put on the cabs. It's all very predictable. I think when you tell that story to people, they see, and again, here's your Marxism, they see what the underlying drive here is. And the answer, I think, at least the answer from a Marxist perspective, is not to beat up on Uber and Lyft. Not that they deserve to be admired. They don't. But that's not the problem. The problem is the system that constantly produces this result that I have just described in the taxi world in every other area where it is humanly possible to do so. Your prescription for most um, like expanding workplace democracy is typically in the form of like worker cooperatives. Um, is there a reason you don't speak as much about things like anarchism, for example? 
Like, I'm sorry, I didn't hear the last word. Oh, is there a reason, for for example, that you don't speak as much about anarchism as opposed to, um, you know, socialism in the, in the form of workers owning the means of production? Well, I mean, there's many reasons, uh, as there always are. But let me give, and I don't mean to be facetious here, because this is serious. Mm-hmm. I know that I live here in the United States in a country that has had a more sustained, systematic indoctrination of its people uh, than perhaps any in the world. But certainly it's right up there in the leading group. Uh, we have, you know, and this is my whole life. I mean, when I was born to the time I'm speaking to you, everything about socialism, communism, anarchism uh, has been demonized. I remember when I first started teaching college and I would ask my students questions and I quickly understood a problem. They used the words socialism, communism, Marxism, and anarchism as synonyms, Mm. often extending to terrorist or to liberal even, depending on the part of the country where I was at the time. And at first I said, "My, my students are uneducated. That was a mistake on my part. They weren't uneducated, but they had been educated in a very particular way. They had been told that uh, these were all evil, awful, freedom-hating, un-American, fill-in-the-blank. You you grew up in this society, you know what I'm talking about. Even if no one ever spoke to you explicitly, it's in the air we all breathe. So one of the things I have done, and it's in the book, Understanding Marxism, part of the reason it's written the way we talked about at the beginning of this interview, Uh, is I don't want to use those languages. I want to use new and different words that don't have the same awful associations in the hope, and that's all it is, in the hope that I can deal in the substance of what I have to say using language that will allow the person I'm saying it to to engage with the ideas rather than to have a knee-jerk reaction saying this is not for me or I don't like this or uh, didn't Stalin murder a lot of people or whatever other way you get to dismiss the substance of an idea uh, by drawing up a demonizing uh, association. And so I don't say socialism in the 21st century will be X. I believe what I just said. I think that socialism in the 20th century was about the government stepping in to soften the hard edges of capitalism or or to replace capitalism with something where the government did more for you in your education, in your uh, medical care, in your housing, and so on. That was the thrust of it. The 21st century isn't going to do that. Partly because it didn't solve the problems of the 21st of the 20th century, and partly because of the negative things, some of which are quite true about the Soviet Union and about China, that people nowadays don't want to reproduce. In other words, they want to learn from those experiments in socialism, both what to do and what not to do. And one of the ways you do that is to say that the thrust of 21st century socialism will be to do at the micro level inside the workplace, the factory, the office, the store, 
the democratization, the equalization that was never done in the other socialisms of the 20th century. The government came in and regulated. The government in Russia came in and took over the ownership and operation of the enterprises. But it didn't transform the internal organization of those enterprises, which for me is what Marx's critique uh, focused on. So I want to see in the 21st century a focus on the radical transformation of the workplace where most adults spend most of their lives at work, five out of seven days and all of that. Um, and I think that thrust of a socialism in the 21st century will do more, get further in the goals of doing better than capitalism than they were able to do in the 20th. And I don't dispute that great gains were made in the 20th and the 19th century in the critique of capitalism. So this is not a Monday morning quarterback, but we have to learn, like we spoke earlier, Marx learned from the Paris Commune, uh, Gramsci from the, the strike in Torino. We have to learn from the experiments of Russia, China, Cuba, North Korea, North Vietnam, so on, the to-do and the not-to-do, and refashion the next phase of the socialist critique. And I think its, its growth area is going to be the transformation of the workplace. And let me conclude by saying, not least because the, the critics of socialism aren't ready for that. They have sharpened all of their critical knives on the notion of the government. The government is the socialist utopia, and we're going to be critical of the government. Well, they're not, they've, they've done a good job of that. I'll give them that. But they're not ready for a critique of capitalism that focuses uh, on the internal organization of the enterprise. And I know that from practical experience, because every time I debate or argue with them, uh, they're basically unprepared. I'm sure they can get prepared, and they will. But for the moment, this is a way of positioning the next phase of socialism for which the antagonists are completely unprepared. Uh, two quick questions from the audience. Uh, one of them being, do you have any Canadian uh, uh, economics writers you could recommend? Uh, and the second one being, what are your thoughts on uh, worker-owned businesses, but they're not worker cooperatives? Yeah, um, I don't have someone from Canada. But let me quickly say, that's that's my weakness. That's my uh, ignorance. I'm not familiar with Canadian literature uh, in, in particular. I do know that around York University in Toronto, if I've got my Canadian geography correct, there has always been uh, for a long time a strong tradition of Marxist economics. Uh, and my guess is that's still there and that there are all kinds of graduate students, teachers, and so on uh, that you can find at that particular institution. Uh, it, it exists elsewhere in Canada. They have less of the long-term hostility to socialism and Marxism than the United States, and that gives them a leg up, and you can find that in their, in their literature. I'm just not familiar with a name that, that I can give you. Uh, as to the other one, yes, I am very concerned I wouldn't say critically, but I'm concerned about the difference between worker-owned and worker-run cooperatives. Very interested in that difference. And for me, worker ownership is good if it is a stepping stone 
to worker co-op. In other words, if when the workers become owners, say through a, uh, the ESOP program, we call it here, uh, enterprise, I forget what ESOP stands for. It's, it, it's the, the generic name for uh, situations where workers, for example, become the major shareholders of a, of a, a corporation and therefore are literally the owners of the corporation. The question is, what is the role of an owner? In most corporations, the owners play little or no role. All the, the key decisions are made by the board of directors. It's true, once a year, the owners have the right to vote for who sits on the board. But in most cases, these are pro forma elections in which a sitting board recommends its own continuation or it recommends who to replace anyone leaving, and then the mass of the, the stockholders either don't bother voting, which is often the case, or vote for whatever the board recommends. In other words, the people who run modern corporations are a self-selecting group of people. And what that means is that the norm of ownership is not to affect what goes on inside the enterprise. That's why in most worker-owned enterprises, they end up electing a board of directors who are typically people who have been on boards of directors in other regular capitalist enterprises and operate the worker-owned one pretty much the way they operated the one that was owned instead by shareholders. But it is, of course, possible if workers are the owners that they take the initiative, but that's quite rare, take the initiative to convert the running of the enterprise into something that is a democratic prerogative of the workers who work there. This, for me, that's the revolutionary transformation that we need. We have had worker-owned enterprises in the United States for at least the last century, including big name corporations that for a time were owned by their workers in terms of share ownership. I'm thinking of Avis Rent-A-Car, United Airlines, and there's a long list of others uh, that I could bring forward. But for me, those have so often devolved into a typical corporation in terms of the everyday life of the vast majority of employees that for me, that's not the adequate step and is valuable only to the degree that it might lead to the conversations, the discussions about transforming the internal organization uh, of the enterprise uh, and not just its ownership uh, in, the, in the way of a, of a democratization. For me, I am a Democrat with a small d. I like democracy. I think the democratization in, in the place of monarchy was a great step forward <laughs> for the human race. Agreed. I really do. But I am very sad that we, especially in this country, that the embrace of democracy has always excluded the workplace. There is no democracy inside the workplace in 99.9% .9 of the enterprises. That is a flaw. That is a failure. And it is a a way to raise questions everywhere in the world. Every time an American politician refers to this country as a democracy, the answer is given, 
Yeah, well, the vast majority of your people work all day, five days a week in an institution called the workplace where they have no power over the people who tell them what to do. And that's not democracy. Agreed. Uh, do you have time for one more? Shoot. All right. Uh, this is in relation to what you were talking about earlier in terms of using terms like anarchist and socialist. When Bernie right. was running, Wolf advocated it was a great thing Bernie identified as a democratic socialist or a social democrat as it had gone a long way towards changing the country's relationship to the word. So are you not suggesting now that the word should be downplayed? No, no. Good point. Good point. I, I am great. Just speaking personally, I am grateful to Bernie Sanders and I always will be for his courageous step there in 2015, deciding to contest for the presidency and not disavow or renounce uh, the label socialist uh, that he had carried before that time. That was amazing. I think that was made possible by the Occupy Wall Street movement a few years earlier. I don't think there would have been that decision by Bernie uh, Sanders, uh, and I think he has opened this space, and we can talk about socialism. Indeed, that's why I phrased it as there's one socialism of the 20th century, and I think there's a different one emerging for the 21st century, because I, I would have had to drop the word socialism and talk to, in other ways about uh, industrial organization or something like that, had he not opened that space. And, and even more than that, I would say that the most important thing about opening the discussion of socialism is that it puts capitalism onto the defensive. It puts capitalism as something we need to talk about. You know, 10 years ago, you would have searched long and hard to find the word capitalism in most of our daily literature, radio, TV, newspapers, and so on. There was a, the taboo on these subjects was so deep that people shied away from talking even about the system because it implied that there were systems and they might be other than capitalism and maybe socialism is the one that we ought to be thinking. All of that was taboo, so it was gone. We now talk about capitalism and I think, and we do it all the time, uh, businessmen and women do it, uh, politicians do it, uh, journalists do it. Uh, in a way they never did but, you know, before, at least not in my experience. And I think that's also to the credit of Bernie and putting socialism uh, on the agenda. The critique of capitalism is what Marx was about. All of his books were about that. He, he spent very little time speculating on what a future, whether you call it socialism or communism, and these were words he did not use, uh, except very rarely and then in a gestural type of way. He wasn't about predicting or about speculating. His job, he felt, was to show that capitalism was not the best thing that ever happened to people since sliced bread. That capitalism, like the systems that preceded it, feudalism and slavery, would be born as it has been, would evolve over time as it has done, and then what wouldn't die away. And so the only real question was what would make it die, when might it die, and what would replace it that would be better than what it had been able to achieve. And that's the, that's the mandate, if you like, of using Marxism uh, here and now. Uh, the last thing I want to ask you while I have you here, 
I know that Marx didn't write a lot about colonialism or imperialism. Those are obviously topics that Lenin wrote a lot uh, about post-Marxism. But right now there is a a big push uh, both in uh, the United States and Canada for uh, activists in regards to land back and indigenous issues as well. I'm curious what your analysis of that would be from, say, like a a Marxist perspective. Yeah, um, the most I can I can say to you is it's a wonderful example of something we talked about, you know, half an hour ago. Uh, the struggle of colonies, whether they are recognized as such or not, to get self-determination, to get independence, if that's what they want, uh, or whatever their, their, their effort to get out of the colonial situation they're really in, whether or not it's also the legal status they have, that's a very important struggle. It's not a class struggle. It's not about capitalism versus socialism, but it has its own enormous importance. It could have all kinds of relationships to the struggle for socialism. I would encourage those, uh, but those are alliances and coalitions uh, to build. In many cases, they have not been built. And by the way, not surprisingly, especially here in the United States, if you look at uh, indigenous uh, people in this country, if you look at the particular story of Puerto Rico and so on, the movements for independence, for improved circumstances, for legal and other kinds of rights has been hobbled by the demand of the people running these struggles not to get drawn into alliances or anything else with socialists uh, or people that are critical of capitalism for fear that it would split their movements, it would bring the wrath of the government down on them on top of the wrath already there because they were contesting their colonial status. So they kept clear of those alliances. In my judgment, that weakened them. But in their judgment, they felt they had to do that. I think we're now at a point, because of your rightly bringing up the legitimacy that Bernie gave to socialism, that socialism is now becoming a part of the the lives, the thoughts of Americans, that the possibility is much greater now that we will see the alliances and coalitions between people struggling out of a colonial situation and people struggling out of a capitalist employee situation, out of the grasp both will have that they will be stronger each in their focal struggle if they have the alliance with the other. So I see that as an argument Marxism can bring uh, to why such alliances should be constructed. Um, Professor Wolf, where can everyone find your new book? When is it coming out? Where do the, where's the best place to buy it? And most importantly, because I was asked, where can we get it where the most amount of money goes to the workers instead of Amazon? Right. The best thing, and you can order it directly, is from our website. And the website is very simple, democracyatwork.info. If you go to democracyatwork.info slash books, they're all of our books. You can order them right there at that website uh, and they get delivered to you very quickly. And uh, for the rest of your work? Same place. Go to the website. Everything we do, 
is accessible on the website. If you're interested in the weekly radio and television show we do, uh, and the other kinds of, they're all on YouTube. Uh, they're the best thing to go is, again, Democracy at Work uh, slash Economic Update, because that's the name of the weekly radio and TV show. Uh, Professor Wolf, it's always an absolute pleasure to have you on the show, and I hope you have fun with your upcoming 15 more interviews you're doing today, or whatever that number might be. Uh, only one more today. <laughs> right. Thanks very much. It's a pleasure to talk to you. you really, I don't mean to butter you up, but your questions are, are really right on, and I think that's why the, the interviews work, because you've done the preparation to ask the really important questions. So my thanks to you as well. And thank you so much. Have a great day. You too. So you've just been listening to an episode of The Surf Times. And if you enjoy it and want to see The Surf Times, you can go to wearesurfs.com or watch the live shows at thesurfs.tv. And also everywhere social media is sold, basically, thesurfs.tv. You'll find us there, twitter.com slash thesurfstv, for example. It would also help us out tremendously if you could leave a good review of this podcast if you enjoyed it, either on, I don't know, iTunes or wherever you're podcasting. Apparently it does help. And yeah, we hope to see you soon. To our gods, Xander Corvus and Peyton L. Just, we will build a ladder to heaven to deliver you the daily news. To our monarch, Tom Spiker, we are your most humble of clownish jesters. To our lords, Trevor R. and Alexander Thaler, you have our undying fealty. To our knights of the round table, Nate, that one guy, Hagbird Celine, Matthew Scarborough, Stellar Vision, Ariana McCarthy, Daniel Sutton, Ants are still running the world. Coulter Smith, Tom Grow, Val 9000, Jenna Tal, Quiet185, Anna Loves Riley, Riley and Anna, Omni, Poodlehawk, The Tim Caucus, Multimondi, Trevor Janice, Lemmy 101, Anthropophojack, Saren 42, Chronic to Hemp Hog, Catherine, Radical Maniac, Ramon Acosta, Incosin, Violent Orchard, Sophie Baby, Political Puppy, Andreas Chiringuito, Zach Christensen, Josh Mickelson, Todd Buckingham, and Todd Lajeunesse. We shall meet you in the tavern, and we raise a drink, and we salute you. 